Good morning, diners and travelers. You're listening to On the Menu with Ann and Peter Haig. And uh, today we're dealing with basics. Is that what we call it? Well, yeah, yeah. we get a lot of feedback from, from listeners who say, this is all fine. You know, and it tastes, it's, it sounds wonderful, and I'm sure it's going to taste brilliant. But I couldn't cook that. That's much too complicated. So, in today's program, guess what? There'll be a, there'll be a segment on a book called Uncomplicated. Yeah. And uh, a couple of other contributions to those who feel like they need something simpler, but just as equally delicious on the table. You know, we're going to start with um, Christopher Kimball, uh, himself a, um, a, a pretty basic, down-to-earth, realistic kind of guy. Um, and it's a book he wrote called Milk Street Tuesday Nights, which gives you some idea that this is everyday affair. Got it. So, so here's a story. Uh, Christopher Kimball... Your new book is Milk Street, Tuesday Nights, which we'll be talking about. Um, but for our rare listener who does not know who you are, how about uh, telling us a little about your extensive background and your colorful career? Well, after studying primitive art in college, I decided to start a cooking magazine. Yeah, well, I... Cooks I magazine. I, yeah. I, I was an art historian, too. <laughs> Uh, yeah, well, you know, uh, well, it was, it was, it was worth four years of my time. Anyway, I started Cook's Magazine in 1980, and that eventually led to America's Test Kitchen. And, um, I, I guess I spent, uh, 30, 30 plus years with Cook's and all of that. Mm-hmm. And, um, then I decided to, that my cooking had changed, um, that, uh, most of my life have been been cooking the foods of Northern Europe, mostly French and English, uh, and then American, which is based on that. And, um, yeah, I, I realized there's a whole other world of cooking, and that, too, the cooking was simpler, had more flavor, just more interesting way of approaching food. And so I started Milk Street a couple of years ago to go around the world, cook with people, mostly home cooks, bring it back here, and adapted to our kitchens uh, to change how people cook. Now, you have you have a co- cooking school at this Milk Street location, right? Yeah, we're, we call it Milk Street. We're so brilliant because we're on Milk Street. Uh, yeah, that makes Boston, sense. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's how smart our creative team is. And uh, Benjamin Franklin was born on Milk Street, actually. Uh, there were a couple famous restaurants on Milk Street in Boston many years ago. Yeah, I thought Benjamin Franklin um, was from Philadelphia. I, lived, I used to live in Philadelphia. <laughs> no, he uh, he was born on Milk Street. He, he started farther north. Uh, and then, um, yeah, we do have a cooking school right here. Uh, we do about 200 courses a year. Uh, we do some oh, that's nonprofit huge. work. Yeah, we do quite a lot. And we do some work with the Big Sisters and... Boys and Girls Club of Dorchester and uh, bring kids and teenagers in to cook. And we, you know, we have a TV show, of course, Milk Street, on public television, a public radio show, uh, the magazine. So we have a bunch of stuff we're doing. Right. Now, I mean, I must tell you, are you still involved with uh, a test kitchen now? With America's Test Kitchen? Yeah. No. I'm no so longer as of... Uh, 2015, I was uh, no longer involved. Yeah, because we just did interviewed somebody who did a collaboration between that and um, National Geographic, which is oh yeah, oh, yeah. oh is that is that the same American Test Kitchen? The yeah. same people. Yeah. Okay. yeah, yeah, it was a good that was a good interview. Yeah, yeah, they they did. I think they've done a couple of pretty interesting books. With them. It was an excellent connection. The National Geographic connection helped yeah. helped them helped them to make it more than just a cookbook. Right. And I think people are always looking for that. Well, you know, I, I find it really hard not associating um, the the magazine with you, actually. Um, it's, you know, it doesn't look the same without that sketch of uh, your portrait sketch. You know what I mean? Well, yeah. I mean, uh, you and I have been, all three of us have been around long enough to know that things change in life. Sure. So, um, you never know uh, when you wake up in the morning what's going to happen. I mean, I look for me, uh, it's really a rejuvenation because I have a 
smaller staff, about 40 people now. Um, I love the food we're cooking. I get to travel around the world and meet people. Um, so for me, it's, yeah, well, it's, it's the, next the recipes are much more exciting, uh, yeah. like in this book, than than the magazine. I mean, to be perfectly honest, I just stopped subscribing to it because it didn't tell me anything new. <laughs> well, I think um, I think what's happening is that uh, until recently, the rest of the world, from the perspective of America, was cooking ethnic food. And I really do not like that term at all. No, but my point is that it. everyone think it was foreign food, you know. Well, it turns out, you know, obviously, I've, I've said this many times, but if, if if you live in Mexico City or Oaxaca or Lisbon or wherever, <clears throat> you don't say to somebody, oh, let's, let's cook Spanish food tonight or let's cook Mexican food tonight or let's cook <laughs> Moroccan food tonight. You just cook food. Yeah. And so even if you don't actually speak the same language, if you get into a kitchen with somebody, uh, in Taipei or Tokyo or in Dakar, you know, you still speak that language, and the, and they're doing the same thing, maybe a little bit differently, but the same thing. It's putting food on the table. So I think the revolution that happened in restaurants going back to the 1980s in America and on food television is now going to happen in the home kitchens because people are more familiar with the food. They can get the ingredients. Um, and it's not, you know, people know the difference between Taco Bell and Mexican food, right? Yeah, I think so. I, I think finally. I yeah, hope so. so. I always, thought, yeah, I always so. thought it was a Mexican telephone company. There you go. <laughs> that's pretty good. I haven't heard that. That's, um, that, so, that's, that's a big you, joke. You know, you? If you want to make a green salsa or something, people know what that is. Uh, and I think people are, the, the, the real joy of this is actually the cooking's easier and simpler because you're starting with more flavor, herbs, chilies, fermented sauces, ginger, whatever. So you start with the stuff, and then so it's pretty easy to end up with big flavor. It's not like French cooking where you have to spend a lot of time and technique to develop flavor. You don't have to develop it. It already exists. Right. Now, I had a question, and I wasn't satisfied with the answer Anne gave me. <laughs> what? Why? Why is it called Milk Street Tuesday Night? I mean, it could Tuesday be... Night is sort of my shorthand for quick, uh, you know, get it on the table, fast cooking. Got it. Okay. So, as opposed to Saturday Night, which you, you spend more time on. So this is, you know, on a day-to-day basis, how do you get dinner on the table? That's why it's called Tuesday Night. Okay, now you have, um, uh, it's all, I mean, you were so organized, <laughs> I've always thought that you were so organized, um, and it, it down to the line in details, and so this book, I'm not surprised to find it um, organized, color-coded, and yeah. so forth, yes, I mean, that's very you, I think, <laughs> and I mean, you associate yourself with that too, don't you? Yeah, I've always been... Uh, well, <clears throat> I, I learned early on that how people actually cook at home bears no resemblance to what people talk about in food magazines, right? Oh, right, yes. Be- because the reality is people take shortcuts and they don't have all the ingredients, they don't have the right size pan, or they don't have enough time, or they don't read the, they don't read the recipe, and the recipe says, you know, soak the beans overnight, you know, and they don't have time. Yeah. So I, I think it's really important to be explicit. I mean, if you say one large onion, you know, for a lot of people, they're not quite sure what you mean by that, or how big is a shallot, you know. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's being specific is helpful to people so that they feel comfortable making a recipe. I mean, if, if you're not, if you don't cook a lot, and you pick up the average recipe, you'll have a lot of questions, and that just makes it harder. So I, I'd like to be explicit as much as possible, and yeah, but also head people off the path, you know, like, don't do this or don't do that if it's really important. Well, what I like, I mean, I'm, I'm used to cookbooks, obviously, and, and they almost invariably will have a, a tips section, you know, or secrets right. or whatever it is. You build it right into your head notes. Yeah, yes, tips on every page. Yeah, in I fact, mean, everything in your head notes, uh, in twice, fact, actually, in fact, without have, calling them tips. You have two different kinds of tips. Yeah, we have um, the just basic introduction to the recipe to help people out, and then right. we have, <clears throat> don't do this. You know, don't use baby spinach, for example, uh, because it's going to just wilt in the pan if it's a recipe for stir-fried spinach. So, yeah, we do both. And I think the, the don't do this 
part I really like a lot because that's what's the one thing people can do in a recipe that will completely mess it up, and that's that's the one we want to. That's put under. and you got it. I mean, you know, the funny thing is, I, I mean, I'm I'm a pretty experienced cook and and um, have written cookbooks and so forth and so on. Uh, I never understood and gardener, and I never understood the difference between attempting to uh, chop basil without completely drying it and how it suddenly got brown. And you explain right. that. <laughs> you have to make sure it's completely dry. That would be true of all herbs, yes. If they're slightly wet, you will get a mash. You won't You won't get them chopped properly. That's true. But, I mean, this basil is particularly hard on basil, the um Basil goes south very quickly. That's right. There's even some discussion about which way to chop them. Well, how do you the grain or with the grain? And that's oh, really? The, too. the one, the one tip we got the other day from from someone who sounded like she knew what she was doing, which if if you're really serious about your uh, your pesto, then you won't use a blender. You'll you're mashing using right. a mortar and pestle, and you'll and you'll cut the center stem out. I, I never heard I, of that. I, I can picture I can picture <laughs> us do, I, I can picture us doing that. <laughs> No, I'm I'm not going to be doing that. But but we we were actually, my editor was in Italy a few months ago and made pesto Genovese. They they start with the pine nuts and the garlic first. Uh They pound that in a mortar and pestle, and then they add whatever cheese they're going to add. Then they add the basil and copious, copious amounts of it. Yes. Uh, And then only a small amount of olive oil at the end. And so it's almost a dry paste. It's not a liquid salsa verde. Uh And the trick is you put that fairly dry mound of pesto on your cooked pasta, and you use the pasta cooking water to turn it into a sauce. So instead instead of the olive oil doing it, it's really the cooking water. So you get a much more fragrant, full flavor of basil, which is obviously what pesto is about. Yeah, well, I mean, I had, I was surprised that I, I mean, I'm very proud of my basil and my pesto, and I gave some to a friend who's, she's a good home cook, and uh, she complained that it was so thick that she, what did she thin it with? It was with um, something like sour cream or something awful. What? <laughs> She thinned it down with, I think yeah. it was sour cream or... My, 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 that was terrible. It's awful. My favorite with yours is to just cut, take it, take it some of the, out of the jar and spray it on a cracker. Yeah. Um, you, yeah, but with the wetter stuff you can't and do you, And you wouldn't, it wouldn't, it wouldn't work with the, with the, with the dry, but I guess what I'm, well, what I'm, I'm not simulating a Genovese no, person mine eating. Is, mine is thicker and drier than most. It's not as soft. Oh, it's not oh like right, right. No, no. Some some of the stuff we get through the mail, it's it's really runny. Yes. Okay, Chris. Yeah. Um, walk us through these little color coded circles. You start out with fast, faster, well, and they're, fastest. There's fast, faster, fastest, which just gives you a sense of time. And then we have some other chapter about additions or sweets or one pie meals, uh, other things that sort of have their own definition. Right. Um, but when you're talking but fast, what are, give us an, our listeners an idea of how long. There's no recipe that takes more than what? An hour. I mean, I would say fast is hopefully 45 minutes or so. But, you know, again, we have to adjust the times based on what we think the average home cook's going to do. But fast should be around 45 minutes. Now, there are some, Certainly no more than an hour, but 40, 45 minutes. I noticed some pages had had the half circle, and all it said in the half circle was Tuesday night. What was it? Did that make them Well, at least you special? know what book you have. <laughs> That's what I said. <laughs> no, that was, that was a page seven. Page, page, page seven said fast, and then page eight just says Tuesday night. <laughs> it's bothered him a lot, Chris. <laughs> well, actually, my, my page 7 says, oh, my page 8 says Tuesday night. Well, that's because if you look um, in the book, yeah, if right. there's a circle, the, the answer to your question is on the right side, 
it'll tell you what chapter you're in. If it's on the left side, it'll tell you what book you're <laughs> That's in. That's what oh, I told okay. you. I told you that. Well, I, you see? believe me. He explained it properly. You didn't explain, <laughs> you didn't explain it the same way. Okay. I just, I have no idea what difference it would make you, anyhow. You, you have no idea what I'm going to say next. So anyhow, but you've found a whole new world of flavor is what you've essentially done. Um, and a lot of people have known that for years, haven't they? Well, as I as I hasten to point out, I've, we've done nothing new. I mean, if you live in Iran or you live in, in Taiwan or if you live in Sichuan or you live in Thailand or wherever, none of that stuff is new to you at all, uh, or India with all its different cultures and cuisines. We're, we're not inventing anything uh, because everything's already been invented in the world of food. Um, all we're doing is saying, gee, you know, this is stuff that you can actually do in your kitchen back in wherever. And it actually is a better way of cooking. Um, so we're not, you know, we're not being creative here. Mm-hmm. We're just saying there's just amazing stuff out there. And it just seems to me, you know, everyone's been saying in the last generation, the world's very small, it's getting smaller. Well, maybe, but the world of food is infinitely large. Mm-hmm. And my favorite example is if you go in the Middle East, and there's all these classic recipes, right, like tabbouleh and hummus and mahadara and other things, <coughs> kebabs, etc. So every country has its own take on it, and then every city or town in those countries has a different take, and every household in every city in every country exactly. has its own take. So you, you, you can walk into two different households in Beirut, where I was recently, and, and if they're going to make uh, kibbeh or whatever, yeah. it's going to be different. Mm-hmm. And so the, the notion that I'm inventing something is insane. We're just saying, look, you know, we have been limited, at least not all, everybody, but many of us have been limited by a sort of northern European approach, which is fine. But northern European cooking doesn't use spices to speak of, doesn't use handfuls of herbs, doesn't use chilies, doesn't do all these other things, you know, doesn't do stir-fries. So... Let's take a look around, and maybe there's some stuff we can learn. All we're doing is learning from other people who've been doing this, you know, their culture's been doing this for hundreds or thousands of years. We're not, we're just reporting. Right. Uh, and we're translating, but we're not inventing anything. And you're not, you're not aiming specifically for authenticity, are you? No, that's a good question. Uh, it's one we talk about all the time here in Milk Street. Uh, no. We, we think it's really important to do two things to go somewhere and taste the way it's made there so you know what it's like there. Mm-hmm. So you're not just looking at a cookbook. You've actually been there. And two, to give people credit, you know, where credit is due. So if you go somewhere and you cook with somebody, say, look, I was with, you know, Muhammad in Beirut, and we made these things, and here's how it was made. Mm-hmm. And so we, we don't just take something. We, we give credit, and then we say, okay, this inspired us when we got back to do this. But at least we've told the reader or the viewer, look, this is the authentic approach, and this is what we're doing, and this is why. Because there's a lot of ingredients that don't translate, and there's some techniques that don't translate. So we do have to – you know, Julia Child really (laughs) was one of the great translators of all time. Uh Simone Beck, one of her co-authors, really is the one with the recipes. And Julia took those recipes and translated them for an American audience. Uh and so what she was doing is very similar to what we're trying to do. She did it with French cooking. We're trying to do it with, you know, a hundred different cuisines. Yeah, I especially, I, I like the uh, Uruguayan sandwich. The, the, oh, yeah. The, 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 uh, the Chivito. Chivito. Yeah, the, uh, that's good. And, that's, and it, it got its name because the proprietor of the restaurant lied about what it was. <laughs> <laughs> well, right? I, I remember a few months ago when they were developing their recipe, I... I kept saying, well, maybe you should prepare it in the late morning. <laughs> so we, we can eat it for lunch every day. Yeah, that's really good. Yeah, it's, it's well, a, it's just it a, sounds really fabulous. Well, you know, it's so it's so interesting that different cultures think about con- combining food differently or they think about cooking differently. Or, You know, the, the, a, a great example is uh, Italy. Everyone thinks there's nothing new. But we were at a place in, uh, where they grind corn for cornmeal, and they showed us how they make polenta. Basically, they put it 
two cups of plants with 11 cups of water in a big pot, and they stir it a little bit, and then they stop stirring, and they cook it for like an hour and a half. And you can do that. You can do that in your oven. Yeah. So there's almost no stirring, but there's no cheese in it. There's, there's no butter in it. It's cornmeal, salt, and water. So you taste the corn, and it's incredibly creamy. Um, and you don't really have to stir. And so you go, oh, well, I, I thought I knew how to make polenta, but I didn't because still today you go back to those classic recipes. There's still something to know, and I find that so interesting. I, th- I thought Italian food had been pretty much nailed down by this time, but not true at all. Yeah, well, I mean, the, you talk about variations, um, family sure. family. I was I, When I was doing magazine writing, I was assigned to do the Feast of the Seven Fishes. Well, I mean, it's impossible to do that. It's like it's not a definitive thing. I mean, right. the, sometimes it's 12 fishes after the apostles. Sometimes it's the seven of the seven sacraments. And, and even if it's the same number, what fish are used varies, right. you know, not village to village, but family to family. So it's totally different, you know. I, I, was, a trifle, yeah. I was a trifle wounded, Chris. Because you, you were a trifle what? I was a trifle wounded because because you didn't you didn't have any British recipes. <laughs> I, wonder, <laughs> I wonder I wonder why. Well, I, I did British recipes for thirty five years. So you did okay. So you can I, be I, forgiven. I've, huh? I've done spotted dick and I've done all the trifles and I've done all the steam puddings and I've done all the roasts and I still love a lot. I love steam pudding. I think by the way, to give credit to the English. Was such a brilliant idea because it started when you had a pot of water, right? Yeah, right. And um, if you had to cook food, we'll just tie it up in a cloth or shove it in a stomach or whatever you got. And it's a way of cooking up a whole bunch of bits and pieces into a pudding uh, just in a pot of, you know, a cauldron of water. It was a very practical idea. So um, that's why, you know, the English have pudding. They they weren't sweet until much later. They were Mm -hmm. savory at the beginning. That was great. No, I had... uh I want your opinion on, on a couple of things since I have you. Look out. Look, look out. <laughs> um, the first thing is this instant pot. Now, I mean, I, I interviewed a, um, a, a young Indian chef, and he said that uh, his mother um, insisted when he was coming to America to pa- that he pack a pressure cooker in his suitcase. Right. And, uh, and it turns out that it's also a standard practice for French cooking. I mean, instead of these long hours, um, I'm, I'm talking about home cooks, of course. Um, but, you know, when I talk to people, all these, we get all these books on the Instant Pot now, uh, it, it, it doesn't really actually do all those functions, does it? Um, I bought one two years ago just to test it out. I used it two or three times. Um, it's basically a pressure cooker, which has, you know, you can saute in the pot, supposedly, yeah. and has a warming function. It's, you know, but it's basically a pressure cooker. Well, right? that's basically, I mean, people yeah. kept trying to tell me that, uh, that, uh, I mean, I had a rice cooker that did the same thing. You could stir fry as right. well as, yeah. Okay. Well, so. first of all, I, I, I reject the notion utterly that you can saute and brown in it because you're much better off with a heavy, you know, serious skillet uh-huh. or Dutch oven, so I, I, I wouldn't do it in the pot. Secondly, yeah, they're fine. It's like a pressure cooker is fine if it's an integral part of your cooking. Now, I, I was in Oaxaca recently, and I noticed a pressure cooker in someone's kitchen. I said, well, what, you know, why do you have it? He said, well, all of their meats are cooked in water. That's how they cook their meats, except mm-hmm. you know, big, big, tough cuts, not the simple, thin cuts. Um, and she said, well, you know, in an hour I can do it in a pressure cooker versus three hours in a regular pot. So for her, the pressure cooker was sort of an essential stage one to take tough cuts of meat, break it down, and then use it in, you know, mm-hmm. uh, tacos or whatever, yeah. or whatever. So sure, it's fine if you make it part of your repertoire. But if you're going to be doing something different every night and use it three times a year, yeah. Then it ends up in the basement along along with your electric pizza cooker. Yeah. <laughs> it's not going to be that useful. 
So that's why I didn't for. get one. I didn't, I didn't even want to bother testing it. it. Just somebody gave me a pressure cooker, telling me that I could make a risotto easier than that. Well, it wasn't that much easier. I mean, you still had to stir it. And we, had, we tried it. We tried it once. And once, and then we gave it away. <laughs> yeah. No, no. I, I mean, let, uh, let's be fair. If you're cooking ribs, a tough cut of meat, okay? Yeah. You can do a great job in a pressure cooker, and it does a good job with beans and some other things. But you're yeah, right. Beans are good. But risotto, I mean, I once made a cheesecake in a pressure cooker. Did you? Really? Um, yeah, that was, it was, it was a, a famous book that came out years ago called Cooking Under Pressure. Oh, yeah, right. And, um, you know, it, <clears throat> it worked. I had trouble getting it out of the pressure cooker. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, but why do it? You know? Yeah, well, my sister-in-law um, makes... Angel food cake in, in the microwave. Really? Yes. Yeah, she. It works. Yeah, she has. I've never seen anybody use the microwave like Pat does. Yeah, she makes she makes soup. She makes in, everything in, in the microwave. Well, you can do that. I, I, I don't know how she she well, didn't, she didn't learn to do that. Guys. She didn't learn to do that but at I've home. Been, <laughs> I've been around long enough where I don't want a lot. I used to love gadgets, and I had a lot of. Things. Oh, I'm so fed <clears> up. I'm cutting them. way back. I, I use a few things. Um, you know, I, I'm not afraid of unattended cooking time. If you put it in the oven for a couple hours and forget it, I don't really care. Um, I have an old ceramic or Japanese rice cooker on top of the stove, <laughs> which I love. You know, I don't know. I, I Look, if, if you're going to really use these things frequently, they're great. But most of the time... You need a fairly small battery to cuisine. You know, you don't need a lot. Yeah, of I, see, I don't. I'm not looking forward to having to uh, the, to the kitchen of the future where you have all these electronics controlling everything. I mean, we don't make anything quite that complicated, to tell you the truth. Well, I'll tell you a story. I was at the houseware show in Chicago last March, the International Houseware Show, <clears throat> and there was a company I won't mention, but they had their booth. It was quite elaborate. And in one room, they had a um, toaster oven. Yes. It was voice activated. <laughs> so so he, he stood there and said, open. Of course, it didn't work. But um, I, I said to him, I said, why can't you just open it? I mean, what, what's the, there's no benefit. I mean, you can just pull the handle and it opens. I just don't. So hopefully that's not the kitchen of the future. <laughs> Oh dear! Anyhow, I don't want to. I don't want to open anything or start anything with my cell phone. Anyhow, so well, uh, Christopher Kimball. I think that that when we get down to the, to the basic facts about this, people who buy Milk Street Tuesday nights are going to find a whole new world of interesting bold flavors that they can do themselves without uh, reinventing the. I mean, uh, drudgery of. Of old cooking, right? Yeah, I mean, the, the, it sounds like a lot of marketing hype, I know. Um, when I say something like, it's actually easier and better at the same time. But if you think about it, most people in the world don't have elaborate kitchens, right? I mean, it's amazing when you go to people's houses around the world and see what they cook with. They have oh, the yeah. simplest of, of utensils and ingredients. And the food's good or the food's great, <clears throat> but it's not hard. Um, so so I, I, I think I, I was brought up on French cooking, and I always assumed that the quality of food was directly related to heat, time, and technique. Right. You know, like Jacques Pepin, right, yeah. or Julia. And, and that's just not true because there's plenty of places in the world where you don't need to go to culinary school yeah. and you don't, need, you don't need to dice onions or mince garlic. <laughs> right. You know. Yeah, you don't need to use stock. I mean, most people in the world use water. Why? Because that's what they have. Right. And, by the way, if you cook a chicken in water, you get stock anyway. So, yes, exactly. Um, like you know, I, mean, like, I always like to say. I laugh at bone broth. It's a joke. Yeah, <laughs> it is. And, and then, then you know, I, when I travel around, I, I say to everybody, look, I'm going to relieve you of ever having to make, you know, buff bourguignon again. <laughs> it's an incredibly stupid recipe for home cook. You saute the meat in batches, you have those little onions. You, and, and by the time you're done, it all tastes like beef, you know. It's not, I, I, in 30 minutes, I can make a better soup that has a lot more flavor, that's easier to make, and and is more interesting. So, you know, let's, some of that stuff's great, but some of it is seen its day. You yeah, know, and beef, beef bourguignon needs to be retired 
Um, you can take Cocovin as well. <laughs> well, sure, but but Cocovin, I mean, you know, that was that was an old old chicken or rooster. Sure. It had been around of three or four years, exactly. and the meat was tough. Yeah. And so you had to braise it. And if you do if you do Cocovin with a three and a half pound eight week old chicken, <laughs> it's just not going to work <laughs> because the meat's not tough. No, it ends up being we could talk we could talk to you all day but yeah, <laughs> unfortunately there's somebody in the queue behind you <laughs> so oh. we we thank you for your contribution oh, Christopher on, good on luck on the night Tuesday night, night. Milk Street Tuesday nights listeners thank you Christopher Kimball yeah, my pleasure Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Welcome back. Um, next up, you, you got to have a lot of confidence in Anita Lowe, who is um, she's a top-notch competitor, chef. She's had Michelin stars and successes, and she's given credence to a concept that eating alone does not have to be sad. Here she has Solo, a modern cookbook for a party of one. Anita Lowe, I have interviewed people before about cooking for one, which is what you address in your latest cookbook called Solo, which I think is very clever, of course, of the Lowe. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but um, never anything as interesting as this in terms of recipes. Um, I guess I wanted to start out by asking you what it's like not to have illicit right now. Um. You know, it's interesting. I'm, I, I, people, I think I made the right decision in closing it, and I, uh, you know, there's certain things I miss about it, but it's, um, you know, it's been a relief. You know, I ran it for 17 years. Oh, I didn't so realize it was that long. 17 years. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I had, I had run for so seven long. years, and that was way too much. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Uh, and for those just uh, listening in, I mean, uh, Anita Lowe made a, a great reputation on her restaurant, Anissa, which she closed, what, closed, what was it, October? Uh, no, it was at the end of um, May last year. End of May, okay. So I was asking her what life was like without having all that stress. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's been pretty nice. I've been traveling a lot. I've been, we have know, always traveled a lot. Traveled. I mean, one of the things that stands out in your book and your recipes is what a broad perspective of you have on the, the subject of food and, and how influenced your recipes are by world travel. Yeah, absolutely. It's one of my favorite things. So. I, you know, where, where did you start out, Anika? Um, in cooking? Yes. Uh, yeah, my first job was at a boulet, um, down in, which was down in Tribeca. And, um, yeah, I had gone to cooking school for a couple of weeks prior, prior to that. Um, yeah. And then you were with our buddy at the Chanterelle. I hadn't heard of Chanterelle in such a long time until I read it on your bio. Yeah, it was a wonderful place to work. It was, I learned a lot there. He closed. It was a it was a it was a bad surprise when he when they when they closed. We, we yeah, that was kind of awful because yeah, the, they were supposed to reopen it to something else, and then he did um, reopen something, it. but it never worked, right? Did he open something? Uh, no. Um, well, the last time it closed, it was supposed to reopen as sort of a more bistro-like place, and um, the. The funding's all through for that. But they, but prior to that, they had opened uh, uh, the Zank, which was uh, another bistro around the corner, uh-huh. which which did, that, that didn't work out. The thing I remember about that is, aside from this, the matri- I mean, the, the sommelier, Ro- oh, yeah. Roger, I think his name Roger was. Roger de Gorn, yeah. <laughs> he, was fa- he was fabulous. But, but the seafood sausage, the white seafood sausage. Oh, yeah. was, of course. It was, it was out of this, it was out of this world. 
Yes. Yes, sir. That was I yours? That was not mine. No, I, I actually that was I, I did work that station at one point. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, um, and then the sous chef um, always made the, the sausages, so I actually never made them. Myself. Okay, well, I was going to ask. I ate them quite often. Yeah. I was, was going to ask you for the recipe. Um, I think the mousse, and then it had all sorts of you know shellfish in it as well. Yeah, right. It was awesome. fantastic. I made the sauce all the time. You did. Right. Okay, good, good, good. Yeah. Well, you know. Um, I, I love the recipes, and we'll talk some about that. But I love your um, your little essays about your experiences. I mean, it's, it's, it's highly personal. A lot of cookbooks these days are um, sort of memoirish, but yours is really personal. So that I hope that's a good thing. <laughs> yeah, I'm just asking. You know, is this? Um, how did you decide on this take on writing a cookbook? Um, I don't know. I think it was more just a sort of a timing thing. It was, um, you know, I just, I didn't want to have the um, typical head notes that really just talked about the food. Um, I wanted it to be a little bit more story-like. And, um, yeah, that's what I came up with. I mean, some of them are just about the food, but... I don't know, but there's a lot about um, your life and philosophy and and things you like and yeah. I mean, it's really it's an interesting read as well as a cookbook. Um, thank you, thank you. And uh, I also I liked your in the back your um, uh, uh, list of ingredients. Um, you actually you have two lists, don't you? The ones that you would think about, and then. And then the ones that you think are interesting, but maybe you should tell people about. Um, yeah, yeah. There's some. There's a. There's there's a an ingredient list for things that I think you know a lot of people won't know about. You know, just so I, just so you can explain what they are. Um, and then there's an ingredient list back of of things that you should just have around in your kitchen um, to to make it easier to cook for yourself. Yeah. You know, some of your, you suggest storage tips. I mean, every time you read a different one of those, it's a different tip, really, a different way of storing. Some of them I agree with, and some of them I don't even, you know, I never heard of. I'm trying okay. to think of which they would be. Um, I mean, I gave up, uh, you suggest storing uh, garlic in the refrigerator. We gave up on that because it ended up getting moldy. So now we just store it in like in a basket. It has some airflow and it's not refrigerated. I'm going to let it get moldy slower. <laughs> it doesn't <Right>. like it moldy. <laughs> yeah, actually, yeah. I mean, if it's in the, it depends on how it, how, how, how you bought it. Um, if you're, if you're buying whole heads, it, yeah, keeping them on the counter absolutely works. Um, I have a cat. Uh, that, I love cats. Yeah. Does the cat like Yeah, dog? I have a cat, and so she gets, she'll, she'll get into things, so I tend to try not to leave too much out on, on the uh, counter. Well, I think it scares away mice. We had um, a mouse in the house that loved bananas, <laughs> and we haven't had that problem since we stored the garlic with the bananas. I'm not sure it's a great idea, but... <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> I wonder what that's about. <laughs> there were some other ones that I was concerned about. You put a lot of stuff in plastic bags that I don't do. Well, okay. yeah. I mean, yeah, the, the, we can talk about whether plastic is... You know, I do reuse my plastic bags. I wash them out. I, um, you know, I, I think it, it's been... There's been studies that have said that um, plastic bags are... Uh, you know, plastic is not a good thing to um, reheat in. Um, but other than that, it's you know, I mean, it, it does. It is an inexpensive way um, to keep things fresh. Do you actually so. do you actually cook for one at home, Anita? Uh, All right. uh, well, you know, I'm partnered right now, so um, I haven't been mm-hmm. mostly. But um, you know, the difference between cooking for two and for one is really just a math issue. Yeah, no, not only that, but I think we, this is a good time to point out that all of these recipes cooked for one could be expanded. 
No, exactly. No, what, what I was what I was heading down is certainly for one, you must generate a, a lot of little bits of leftover things, and with but two, you probably still finish up doing the same thing. And, and Miss, Mrs. Haig would love to come and visit with you because she, <laughs> she, 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 yeah, she, she lives on a diet of leftovers. <laughs> ah, yeah, well, I think these recipes are calibrated so you don't have lef- leftovers. Oh, they are, okay. Um, yeah, and then um, if there are, you know, if you have to buy an ingredient um, where the recipe doesn't use up that entire ingredient, um, there are... Um, storage ideas plus other recipes that will right. you know, the, the book will guide you to other recipes where you can finish using up that ingredient. Yeah, like broccoli stems you wrote about, but you know, I, I, I never knew that people didn't eat the stems of broccoli when it's cooked. I mean, I, I always included and I grew up including the stems with the flower. The, the flowers. Yes. Yeah. Um, but a lot of Americans don't do that, yeah. Well, Anne's, but Anne's going to break down and tell you that she also eats the stems raw. Yeah, well, so does she. <laughs> Anita, you, you, you do too? Yes, and in fact, I usually just sort of, Crush you know, them. I don't, yeah, I, I will peel the whole, I'll peel the whole stem and then just dip it in salt and eat it. That's my, you know, amuse-bouche. Yeah, well, you <laughs> said your mother always served that, right? Ah, uh, no. I don't remember if you could just cook them. Uh, but yeah, she would, uh, she, she would definitely give us, like, corners of cabbage to gnaw on. I remember that. But, um, the broccoli stems, I think we always just cook just the way you do. Yeah, that's right. Now, you put in a good word for this, um, what is this thing called? Arrow Garden. Yeah, I just right. gave mine away. <laughs> I gave it away to my hairdresser. <laughs> ah, okay. It never generated enough um, herbs for... The way I use them, I always use a lot of herbs. Okay. So, um, um, well, maybe you needed a bigger one. <laughs> can, does it come in different sizes? I don't know. Yeah, I have. I had one a thousand years ago. Oh, um, okay. Yeah, I haven't had one in a long time. Okay. Um, the other thing that I found amusing is your food saver. We had this funny episode with the food saver. Um, <laughs> do you still use yours? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I have, I, I mean, the thing is, I, I have a tiny little apartment in the city and I have uh, a small house out in the country, but the, um, so, it, you know, I, I end up having to save things, um, a lot, and I use that all the time. Well, you uh, know, but I use it also just to reseal things, you know, just cause, you know, we get, we've got, we've got, um, bugs out in, uh, on Long Island that uh-huh. can get into things, yeah. Well, our funniest episode, well, first of all, I mean, talk about stupid. Um, we decided to uh, to freeze some bread. We bought some, you know, um, artisanal bread, big fluffy, right. <laughs> hard crust. <laughs> and we put it in a bag and then vacuum sealed it. And you know how that would go. <laughs> <laughs> Whoops, yeah. <laughs> But what's even funnier was I, I bought a, a baby octopus, and uh, I arranged it and, and put it in this plastic bag because instead of beating it against the rocks, as my ancestors did in Sicily, um, it, you know, it, they say freeze it before to tenderize it. So okay. I did that, too, and it was amazing to watch. The whole thing went flat. <laughs> All the little tentacles, the suckers went flat. <laughs> and oh, so, wow. And so I stood it up inside the freezer, and it sort of waved to me every time I opened the freezer. <laughs> well, when you, when, you cook, when you cooked it, it sort of unfolded. Oh, yeah, it reconstituted it, and I, I screamed when I opened the lid. <laughs> it was like it was going to get its own back by biting the hand that fed it. <laughs> About your recipes, um, you, you certainly have favorites. Um, I, I want to pick something that shows how inventive you are. So uh, let's think of a, a recipe that probably everybody knows of and thinks that they, they make it ultimately. But, I mean, you have little twists that uh, that just change the whole dish. Uh, you know, I think this book is actually more like home 
you know, it's not that chefy. Doing, he did a book with one for cooking for one, uh, and but 
on behalf of using up all the scraps. I think it was cooking with scraps or something like that, so that you don't waste. Well, I think that the illustrations are charming, too, uh, and I think that you've got a, a winner of a book here. And Thank you. Yeah, and uh, um, I wish you great success with it, Anita Lowe. It's called, again, Solo, which I guess explains itself, subtitled A Modern Cookbook for a Party of One. Very good. So, so thank you, Anita. Thank you. Let us know if you're going to launch another restaurant. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to want to launch my own. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Okay, so we're we're coming we're coming down to the final segment, and it, it sure fits the theme of today's program since the title of the book is "Uncomplicated." This is how you take the stress out of everyday cooking. Claire Tansy uh, is a busy woman and um, a trained chef, and she's over the years figured out how she could handle everything she has to handle and juggle her time um, by taking the stress out of home cooking, which is the subtitle of her book, Uncomplicated. Welcome to On the Menu, Claire Tansy. And thank you for thank being, you. and thank you for being so patient and, and listeners. This is just to let you let you <laughs> just to let you on. We had we had a minor glitch with the sound system. Yeah, so. <laughs> but, but, but Claire is back with us from, from Toronto. <laughs> so, so welcome back, Claire. Thank and, you. And Claire is uh, from Toronto. And, um, I, I love your stories about, um, your story about how you, every day, your, your mother who worked full time came home and did an entire meal for you and your siblings. Yeah. At, at, sat at the table, your sister, shoving and nudging you and, and your brother <laughs> arguing about who was going to go meet your dad at the train station. But at any rate, you had a full meal, a tasty meal, a healthful meal, because there wasn't much by way of convenience food at, at that point. Anyhow, no. so, so you know that you can take get tasty meals by limiting eliminating certain steps and procedures, right? Well... It's one of those things that, you know, everybody says they're busy, right? Are you still there? Yeah, yeah. Oh, goodness, my goodness, I thought I'd lost lost you again. Um, No, everybody thinks they're busy, and everybody thinks that we're busier now than we ever used to be. But honestly, when I was growing up, my mom worked full-time, my dad worked full-time, and uh, there was... There was no convenience food, you know. There was no uh, frozen pizza. There certainly was no um, you know, meal delivery service. Um, and somehow my mom still managed to do it. And uh, I, I don't think she was any more, uh, I didn't think she was anything, but I don't think she was any more skilled or talented than anybody who's, who's around today. Um, and so, yeah, it is possible to do it every day. And the the benefits of having a home cooked meal on the table are pretty far reaching. You know, we know that kids who sit down with their families every night are, you know, less likely to, to be depressed and to get into drugs and all that stuff. We know all those things. But it's also great for the budget. You know it's going to be so much easier on your wallet if you can sit uh, together and make a home cooked meal. Uh, of course it's better for the planet and sustainability, it's better for the community, it's better for all these different things. So it does have this far reaching impact. Um, but of course, my my whole uh, the whole kind of push behind this book is to to explain that it doesn't have to be complicated. It doesn't have to be some fancy dinner. Uh, it's as simple as a bowl of pasta and uh, a side salad. So um, you know, kind of lower your expectations a little bit, but then commit to doing it because it is possible. Now well, let's but let's begin at the beginning. Yes, because because the the beginning of being uncomplicated. Doesn't doesn't have anything to do with the cooking. It, 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 has, <laughs> well, it, has, it does it, have to do with the cooking, but before that, before that is the shopping. 
for shopping. And, yeah. and, and, and you say that in your book, and you not, not only say that, you explain how to go about it. So why don't you let us listeners know how you should go about it? And it's true that I really think shopping is about the most underrated skill of cooking. Because uh, it's one thing to cook something, but you have to have the ingredients. Um, and so the, the recipes and the complicated, not only are the ingredients easy to shop for at your, any random grocery store, you don't have to go to specialty stores, um, but also, as you said, I've got a couple of suggestions in terms of what I think you should stock your pantry with so that those easy meals are never too hard, never more than 20 minutes away. And these are things like dry pasta, canned beans, canned tomatoes, um, dried lentils, and uh, the sort of basic spices, very basic spices, nothing too crazy. Um, and then seasonings of vinegar, uh, oil, Parmesan cheese, vino mustard. And then I always like to suggest that people, when they shop, well, this is what I do. It seems to save my uh, seems to save my life on a number of occasions. Is to buy vegetables with a longer shelf life. So you know they're not going to turn to sludge in your crisper if you don't use them tonight or tomorrow night. So you know cabbage, uh, squash, carrots, fennel, celery, those sorts of things um, that you can keep. You can buy them tonight without having a plan for tonight or tomorrow night. So that in a few days you can still make a lovely side dish um, of vegetables with those things. Now, I think it was about this time that I mentioned that Peter had the ultimate longevity of food item, which was a carrot pickle, an Indian carrot pickle <laughs> that we had in our refrigerator for 25 years. It's become a legend. <laughs> It's part of the family. Yeah, you know, I'm sorry we threw out that carrot pickle. <laughs> I, I, I actually, do, I, I know why we did, because, because it dried up. Oh, oh, you, you didn't know, tell, tell the, me the, that. The, the I wouldn't go near it. I have to tell you, the liquid, the, the, liquid, the liquid ingredient eventually evaporated. Well, I have a cookbook with a new recipe for carrot pickle that I could probably make for you. So, so, That's it. Anyway. It went away. It went away with the people who replaced our refrigerator with a new one. <laughs> but, Very good. But, but if you're looking for stories, I mean that's a that's a funny story. But I still I still think the funny story is the one in uh, Claire's book about the stockpot that's human sized. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Go on, tell tell us that one. Well, I uh, I did train as a restaurant chef in fine dining. Um, uh, you know, so I have that background and. When I was apprenticing, we um, we usually made a, a big, huge, huge pot of stock. Uh, we would put it on um, on a Saturday night after service, after having collected you know bones and vegetable scraps all week, and we would let that boil uh, for two days while we all went home and had our days off. And when we came back, it would be this uh, beautifully concentrated stock. Of course, it had to have a lot of volume in it, and in fact, it was so big. But our pastry chef, who was quite a small woman, um, <laughs> could get into it, and we could put the lid on it. And so, for a prank, we would put her in it and put the lid on it and put it on top of the stove without the heat on, without the heat on. And then she would jump out and surprise um, our chef and our master. It was, it was really a good time. I mean, it, it, I guess when you're working 16-hour days in fine dining, you kind of look for fun wherever you can find it. I, st- I still want to know how many restaurants you burned to the ground. <laughs> Interestingly, zero. <laughs> zero. There you go. Now, tell me some of the other kind of time-saving or um, um, energy-saving tips you have, because you know, this is loaded with them. I mean, you do a lot of uh, make-ahead, and you do, um, a, a mute, I call it fusing of stages. I mean, we're in the chef culture now. Where, I mean, people see these master chefs on TV creating these complicated tweezer prepared meals. Mm-hmm. And you yeah. don't need that for everyday dining to have healthful nutritional meals. No, you really don't. And when we think about it, uh, you know, as humans, we've been cooking simple food for generations. That's what makes us human. Um, so remember that, that it doesn't have to be complicated. It can be simple, and there are lots of things that you can do in advance, whether it's putting um, a piece of flank steak on to marinate in the morning, and then it's, it, you, can, you can have it later on that night, 
Or, uh, you know, one of my favorite dishes in the, in the book is an herb and lemon salmon loaf made with canned salmon. I just, I just adore it. I mean, great way to get fish into your diet without having the hassle of having to buy fresh fish. Um, but this salmon loaf is, um, it's pretty basic canned salmon, some breadcrumbs, some nice seasonings and eggs and onions and that sort of thing. Um, and when we were testing it, I had a great a team of volunteer recipe testers, and the guy who tested it uh, had mixed up the, the, the batter, and he put it in the loaf pan, but then something happened, and he wasn't able to cook it right away, so he shoved it in the fridge and cooked it the next day. And because he's a, you know, a good recipe tester, he then also followed the recipe and, and made it baked it as soon as he had mixed it. So we had two different ones to compare. And isn't it wonderful that I can report that the one that was made ahead was not just as good. It was even better than the one that had been made fresh. So with those sorts of things, I have included all those tips and all the recipes so that if you do have that chance to get ahead, then, my goodness, you can go for it. But at the same time, in the rest of the book, because I often don't seem to be quite organized enough to do things in advance, there are lots of really quick 15- and 20-minute dinners as well. Now, I'm interested in a couple of recipes that that I, I think I've mastered, and I've learned some things along the way, and, and you've obviously mastered, and you've learned some things along the way. And the first, the first one is roast, roast chicken, and we mustn't forget your husband's role in that. Yes. I, I used to be afraid of roast chicken. I always thought I, I couldn't do it. Uh, it never seemed to work out well for me. And then I, I met my husband, and he, he well, first of all, he's English, which makes him look quite, quite wonderful in many ways, including the good accent. <laughs> um, yeah, I know. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's quite attractive. Um, but also, he he's a particular he has a particular um, love for all things roasted. He loves his uh, Sunday roast lunch, and so he knows all about roasting chicken. And so from him, I learned that that one of the real secrets of roast chicken is actually getting a good chicken to begin with. So you know, attempting to buy an ordinary chicken at the grocery store. Um, and I do go on about how I think you should get anything you want at the grocery store. But if you can find a chicken that has uh, just a little bit more of a heritage behind it, so, you know, from a smaller butcher, an independent place, because most of the work that goes into making chicken and all other meats, most of the work that goes into making them delicious actually happens before you even factor into the equation. So, you know, the way an animal is raised and slaughtered and butchered and packaged and prepared, it, it has a lot more to do with how good that food, that meat is going to taste than whether you add a dry rub or whether you grill it or pan fry it. So when it comes to um, chicken and steak and fish, if you can invest that a little bit of extra money and extra time, I think it has a massive impact on flavor. What's, and so what, when, you get a great, when you get a great chicken, I think all you really need is salt on it. You don't need any fancy ingredients. But what about Michael's secret? Isn't that, your, isn't that your husband's name? Michael, yes. Michael, Michael, he has these secrets for roast chicken. Go ahead. So he, one of his other secrets, um, which is tried and true across the chef world, but it's very easy. If you can leave your chicken unwrapped in the fridge overnight, it just dries out a little bit and it produces the most golden crispy skin. You can't even believe it. So it doesn't take extra work or extra... Uh, ingredients or extra skill, it's literally just leaving your chicken unwrapped in the fridge. I know that sounds a bit weird, but don't worry, it's completely safe. And you will get an amazing improvement in color and in flavor. And I, I, I learned that from Chef Thomas Keller. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, not, not, not too bad, is it? Of per se in the French line. <laughs> not works, No, it works, works every time, there's no question about it. Now, yeah. let, now let's do the frittata next. Yeah. The, the frittata the, with with everything, the fridge frittata. <laughs> fridge frittata, I whatever think, you've got. I think that's great. I mean, I had a friend who used to make a, you know, a, a soup using all the leftovers called Mother's Little Helper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but we, we, we need to emphasize for the frittata the the, the secret to, to getting it just right is to start it in, start it on the stove. And then finish it in the, under the broiler. Yes. For, for those yes. Peop, for those for those members of your family who are squeamish about eggs that are a bit sloppy. Yeah. And and I do this all the time, and it's in your book. She knows everything. 
Claire knows. Claire knows. She knows all my tried, secrets. I have tried doing the frittata only on the stove. I've tried doing it like covering the pan. But you know what? You're right. It just doesn't work. And so it does sound like an extra step of you know starting it on the stove and then finishing it in the oven. But if you have a good cast iron pan, you are good because you can start it in the pan on the stove and then shove it in the oven and turn on the broiler. Uh, and that is the best way to make sure that the egg isn't overcooked in some places and, like you say, sloppy and unappetizing in other places. And, uh, and, and another secret, if cheese is one of the ingredients? Yes. If, if, if you, what do you call those things? If you, the grater. If you, if you No, if you grate it. Grate it. And then you put the grated cheese on just before you put it under the broiler. Yeah, and it lifts. It lifts not a, not only adds taste, but also it lifts the surface of the frittata. Makes mm-hmm. it makes it makes it wonderful. Yeah, can I add, add something? <laughs> I should write. I should write a book. Huh? I should write a book. <laughs> I, I, you know, the, this is not a, a new idea altogether. That um, you need to have really uh, simple, um, quick recipes because you have an uncomplicated recipes. Because there's one in your book. That you know the uh, provenance of called pasta puttanesca. <laughs> Tell us about that. <laughs> you know, I've been in the food business and the food writing business for almost 20 years, and everybody always makes this big deal about pasta puttanesca. Oh, it's named after the prostitute, so it has to do with the prostitutes. And I think, oh, sure, but the really the best thing about pasta puttanesca, forget the prostitutes, I don't care what they eat. It comes together from what you have in the fridge. Uh, you know, you're talking about carrot pickle. Well, you probably have a jar of papers in the fridge. Uh, you know, and things like olives and canned tomatoes. Those are the things that um, that you have on hand. And if you combine those things with anchovy, you know, it's just this miraculous combination of flavors. And it's a dish that you could happily order in a restaurant. And yes, it can be yours tonight in 20 minutes. For your very own supper. Now, last last question to explore, because we're looking for shortcuts. We're looking for things to make things uncomplicated. Does a instant pot make things less complicated? Well, it's a good question. Your your your, your experience. My in my experience, the short answer is no, uh, and the long answer is I wish I could say differently. I I, I sort of resisted the instant pot, but. So many of my friends and my neighbors were absolutely raving about it. I thought, well, I better try it. So I borrowed a friend's instant pot for a week, and it made a most wonderful beef barley soup, a wonderful split pea soup. But uh, I felt like that was sort of it. It makes great lentils and beans, uh, you know, those Indian dishes. Claire? Great- so there you have it, listeners. No excuse now for not venturing into your kitchen and coming out within an hour with a delicious meal, I, I do. I do that all the time. Ha ha! <laughs> I do. I do it when Anne's doing it, and Anne's in the kitchen. But uh, you, you're now equipped. How how much more uncomplicated, emulating Milk Street on Tuesday nights, and cooking for one, all in all in one program. And uh, we're so glad you joined us for it. And we hope you'll join us again, same time, same place next week. And until then, bye bye.